Welcome to part two of Dr. Better's interview with three pastors who will help us unpack the meaning of six scripture references that are often used as a basis for embracing same-sex attraction as not only acceptable, but affirmed. Christians struggle with how to respond when a friend or someone they respect decides scripture not only condones, but affirms same-sex attraction. The goal of this resource is to equip Christians with a better understanding of what the Bible actually says. This teaching resource is meant to accompany Mark Inc.'s Help and Hope series that addresses same-sex attraction from the perspective of several different people who struggle with same-sex attraction. On our website, you'll find an interview with Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, a resource on same-sex attraction from the perspective of a woman and an interview on same-sex attraction from the perspective of a panel of men. These are hard topics, but it is our purpose to offer help and hope of the gospel by offering the truth of scripture in a way that helps us walk by faith in this confusing world. Well, let's get into the scriptures. One of the purposes of this resource is to analyze, to assess, to theologically take a look at the six passages in Scripture that speak directly to homosexuality. Jim, I remember when I was in my mid-20s, and that's 40 years ago or so, I was invited to a debate on a Philadelphia TV station to debate a professor from Temple University. And one of the de debate questions centered around Genesis chapter 19, which is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And as I sat there and I listened to this professor, his interpretation of that passage was that the real sin was not homosexuality. The real sin was the inhospitableness of that crowd, the fact that they were not receiving strangers in the right way. And what he tried to do, what he attempted to do, is something that I want to address here today, and that is, how do we, how do we look at their interpretations of the scriptures that we know they are, uh, they are addressing from a, a the, from a theological premise that is faulty, a hermeneutic uh, that is faulty? Uh, why don't you take us through a little bit of Genesis chapter 19, and from that perspective, um, uh, address that question? Well, as you mentioned, uh, the traditional interpretation of Genesis 19 is that God brings historic judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah for rampant homosexuality, which rose to the level of even attempted uh, gang rape of the two male visitors, which we know were angels from the earlier chapter, chapter 18. And we even get the word sodomy from the, the way that this sin of Sodom and Gomorrah has been understood. Now, there are different interpretations that the pro-gay or the liberal scholars take on this passage. One that you mentioned, which is that the real the judgment was for the reason of the residents of Sodom being inhospitable. And they base that really on the Hebrew word that's used in this passage, which is uh, yada, which means to know. Uh, because what the men of Sodom, of and it says, the passage says that all men, young and old, came to the door of Lot, where these, uh, where these two angels were being cared for by Lot and his family. And the men of Sodom cried out, you know, bring these men out so that we may know them. And so some liberal interpreters have looked at that passage and said, the men of Sodom wanted to know these men in an inhospitable way. They were pushing to scrutinize their presence in the city, 
rather than just allowing them to have a restful night of sleep in Lot's home, uh, they wanted to bring them out and prosecute their presence in the city. They had uh, they had the right to know that. And the, the challenge with that is that throughout the book of Genesis, um, this Hebrew word, yada, uh, it can mean to know someone in a social context. But even in this very passage a little later, when Lot's speaking of his two daughters who have not known a man, meaning they were virgins, this word usually refers to sexual intimacy and to know someone in a, in a sexual way. So I think that most um, intellectually honest, even liberal interpreters would, would say now for certain that what uh, the residents of Sodom wanted to do was to was to have sex with Lot's visitors who were a- angels. Now, what Matthew Vines does is he puts a slightly different slant on this whole passage, and he sees the sin of Sodom really as the sin of violence and attempted rape. And he says that homosexuality is a complete non-issue in this passage, that the, the real problem is that the men of Sodom wanted to rape Lot's visitors having nothing to do with whether they were men or women, but just the fact that they wanted to commit a violent crime. And he would cite Ezekiel 16, 49 also, which says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister's Sodom. She had her daughters, had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. Now, the way I'd respond to this liberal interpretation, and this is just two examples of it, is first of all, that the first rule of, of Scripture interpretation is always Scripture with Scripture. Um, and I think Matthew Vines leaves the, the larger story of Genesis out of his entire interpretation of Genesis 19. If I were to say that there were two outs and Ron Howard was up to bat, you would assume that we're talking about a baseball game and it's already understood that baseball allows for three outs in an inning. That's, those are the rules of baseball. Well, Moses has already set the context for the entire book of Genesis for sexuality between human beings. The rules of marriage have been laid down already. Moses doesn't need to revisit those rules. They are already the larger context and written into the storyline itself of Genesis. And so as Moses accounts for the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, he doesn't need to highlight the fact that uh, what these residents of Sodom wanted to do to these two visitors was a complete undoing of the God-ordained nature of sexuality and and that uh, homosexuality is a sin. And so um, I think Matthew Vines leaves that out. One, One of the things I remember learning in seminary is that a passage cannot mean for modern readers what it could have never meant for the original audience. And there's no way that Moses's original audience, which were those Israelites who were about to enter the promised land, would have read the story of Genesis 19 and said, gang rape is bad, but same-sex attraction and homosexual relationships in a loving, consensual way are good. They would have never come to that conclusion. And so the other thing that in reading Matthew Vine's interpretation of Genesis 19, he conveniently leaves out verse 50 of Ezekiel 16, which goes on to say, they were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Now the word abomination is an important one. It's the Hebrew word to abah. And in verse 50, Ezekiel uses it in a singular way, speaking of a specific singular abomination. And interestingly enough, when we find that singular use of abomination a little later in the Pentateuch in Leviticus 18, 22, and 2013, it refers specifically to the sin of a man lying with another man as with a woman. And so while there are several sins in the Holiness Code of Leviticus that are called an abomination, the only ones that are singled out in a singular way as abominations is just this one sin 
of a man lying with another man as he would with a woman. And then, and maybe one last passage, if just to remember that the, the primary rule of biblical interpretation is Scripture with Scripture. That's the infallible rule. If we look at Jude, verse 7, where Sodom and Gomorrah are referenced, Jude says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So Jude brings back into purview the, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and mentions specifically how they indulged in sexual immorality, which is a a very rare use of the word porneia, which, of course, Jesus uses to refer to sexual immorality, and the New Testament uses to refer in general to sexual immorality. It's a very rare use of it because it, it adds a little prefix for what comes next. Pursued unnatural desire, or literally, sarcos heteros, unnatural desire, literally, going after other flesh. And so in Jude's mind, the underlying sin of the residents of Sodom, the citizens of Sodom, was that they were going after uh, other flesh, the flesh other than women, like flesh, the flesh, the flesh of men. And then in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, there's another reference to the sin of Sodom, and it's simply referred to as sensual conduct. And a little later in verse 10, lust of defiling passion and despising authority. So I think these passages really undo Matthew Vine's interpretation, where he simply wants to identify the sin of Sodom as a violent attempt to assault people, when in and in and throughout the scripture, the sin of Sodom has something to do with a sexual immorality, um, a sinful desire, uh, lust, and, and, and the so forth. Jim, the Leviticus passages that you quoted, Leviticus 18, 22, and 2013, speak of this sin as the sin of a, a sin that uh, is referred to as an abomination. Mm-hmm. What's that mean, abomination? It means that it is a sin that is directly opposed to the nature of God and deserving of even death. And that's why the sin of homosexuality, along with other sins that are called an abomination, are in the Levitical Code deserving of death. It's interesting to see how the liberal scholars have tried to recategorize sexual sin, specifically the sin of homosexuality, to call it, well, what he really meant was gang rape. What he really meant was pedophilia. What he really meant was rape. And somehow or another, he didn't mean man on man or woman on woman. In Romans chapter 1, which is actually the fourth passage that speaks to homosexuality. Genesis 19 being the first, Leviticus 18, 22, and chapter 20, verse 13 being the next two. Romans chapter 1, uh, I want to read a portion of it, and then I'd like all of you to jump in on this one, if you would, please. In Romans chapter 1, which is the, the traditional passage along with Genesis 19, that we evangelicals like to use to dispute the fact that homosexuality is is an okay thing. It says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy and murder and strife and deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, 
foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, that's pretty harsh language coming from those of us who are supposed to be loving and caring and concerned about uh, where people are spiritually and demonstrating love to them. A lot of people in the gay community and a lot of liberal scholars like to dismiss the Apostle Paul, dismiss passages like this as, well, he was speaking to his culture. He lived in a Roman world where this was... uh, commonplace. Uh, and, and, and what do you do about the, all the other sins that he lists there? He talks about the shameful things that men did with men, women did with women, but then he lists a whole bunch of other things and he puts them into the same category. Was Paul being harsh? I think what the big argument from this passage is this, is that Paul's not referring to homosexuality the way that we've defined it. So they set up a false dichotomy. So basically what, what, what vines and, 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 you know, Boswell and these other guys say is they say that Paul is talking about, again, the whole idea of gang rape, man-on-boy relationships, things that we know existed in the Roman Empire. Um, and But what's interesting in the passage is that this is there's a mutual uh, arrangement <laughs> going on here in this passage. So, you know, what, what, what he says is, uh, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, verse 26, for their women exchanged. Uh, it's not a woman raping another woman. They exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. There's a mutual thing going on there. So when Matthew Vine says, well, this is about men and boys or men raping men, very similar to what his his interpretation of, of Genesis is, that that doesn't seem to be what Paul's saying here. He's saying there is there mutual satisfaction going on and mutual sexual relationships here. So I, that that seems to be their, the big argument from the LGBTQ Christian community is that we're not even talking about two committed people in a loving relationship. We're talking about... Um, uh, sexual immorality of a different kind here. But that's not what Paul's referring to. And again, what, what Jim said earlier, I, I heard it put this way, the, the meaning of the passage is the message of the passage, is that we can't just you know insert our own meaning there. What, what is Paul actually saying? What does he actually mean here? And so I, I think that that's, I think that's probably one of the big points you want to you press. Yeah, one of the things that I hear from, the, I read in their materials is this, that the first century church and we'll go back even further, the people who lived in the day of Genesis and Leviticus and the ceremonial and civil law of Israel, uh, they did not know the concept of a dynamic, intimate, loving, caring relationship between a man and a man and and a man and a woman. That somehow or another, they didn't even perceive of that kind of a thing. So how could they possibly speak to the 21st century man? Right. And I, I read something, I think it was on Redeemer's website, so I'm going to quote them so, so that I'm not stealing this. <laughs> but the whole idea of suggesting that just 2,000 years ago, and I say just 2,000 years ago because we call it ancient history, but it really is recent history. And even 3,500 years ago when we get into you know Moses and, and the Israelites and that, to suggest that they didn't understand what homosexual relationships were, I think does a real disservice to just even the people back then, that they were somehow not as smart or somehow 
um, not as knowing as we are, that, or that because we're more developed in just 3,500 years that, that, that we understand what homosexual relationships are and were. And, and, and on Redeemer's website, I think in response to Vine's book, I just read this quote, Aristophanes' speech in Plato's Symposium, for example, tells a story about how Zeus split the original human beings in half, creating both heterosexual and homosexual humans, each of which were seeking to be reunited reunited to their lost halves, heterosexuals seeking the opposite sex and homosexuals the same sex. Ancients clearly understood that some human beings were attracted to the same sex, and not just in an exploitive relationship, but mutually caring relationship. So even built into the, the mythology uh, of Zeus was that Zeus, in their mythology, Zeus's created order is homosexual relationships, heterosexual relationships. And when Paul in Romans 1 is saying uh, that, that this is, he's saying that this is um, uh, sinful, that homosexual relationships are sinful because it goes against Yahweh's created order. I think that we create a false dichotomy when we start to say that, well, we're not talking about homosexual committed relationships. Paul definitely understood what that was. He was a student of all the different theologies of his time. Yeah, actually, Matthew Vines goes a little bit further than that on this passage in Romans 1, and and I'm going to quote from him so that I don't misrepresent him. He says, Paul's subsequent statements about sexual behavior follow this same pattern. So he sees this whole issue of homosexuality is really illustrative of idolatry. And then he says, the women, he says, exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones, and the men abandoned relations with women and committed shameful acts with other men. Both the men and women started with heterosexuality. They were naturally disposed uh, to it, just as they were naturally disposed to the knowledge of God, but they rejected their original natural inclinations for those that were unnatural for them same-sex behavior. So for Matthew Vines, the issue is that the people Paul's speaking to in Romans 1, they abandoned heterosexuality for homosexuality. He would say that the passage doesn't at all touch on those who are naturally homosexual. Well, Chuck, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9 and 1 Timothy 1 and verse 10 are our two last passages that deal with the sin of homosexuality. Would you like to take a moment and address those passages? Regarding the passages 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, and 1 Timothy 1, 10, what Paul does is he creatively fuses two terms that are found in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. The Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament is called the Septuagint, and so Paul takes two of those terms from Leviticus, and he kind of makes up a new word. So I want to read 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10 first, and Paul says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, and that word, that's one of the key words, that's malakoi in the Greek, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. That's the second key word, and that in Greek is arsenokotoi, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so also in 1 Timothy 1, 10 through 11, Paul says this, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality. Again, that's the same word used in 1 Corinthians 6, or senokoitoi, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, 
in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So the debate goes like this, that it's, it's between the traditional view, and the traditional view would be that Paul argues that homosexuality is against God's good design for normal sexuality and gender expression. And the other side is the contemporary, what is called the affirming position, and that would be the Matthew Vines position, and that would be where homosexuality is actually a created characteristic, not a distortion caused by the fall. And so the question is, is that whether Paul is here addressing the modern experience of monogamous, same-sex, loving relationships. So what is Paul referring to when he uses these terms? And so the traditional view believes that he's referring to homosexuality, and the other view obviously believes that he is not referring to loving same-sex relationships. So Matthew Vines, he cites 1 Timothy 4.3, and he argues that those who forbid gay marriage are false teachers who promote hostility towards God's creation. So he not only says that those who say homosexuality is a sin are, are wrong or uh, misunderstand, but they are false teachers. So he's taking, taking it a step further. Vines believes, and I'm quoting, Paul does not condemn same-sex relationships as an expression of one's fixed and exclusive sexual orientation, but instead he condemns, and this is important, the economic exploitation of others. So in other words, what Vines is saying is that Paul is referring to gay prostitution, not a loving homosexual relationship. So the thrust of his argument with regards to these two passages is that they are commonly mistranslated, producing an unwarranted bias against gay Christians. So I want to unpack the key terms in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. And so the key terms here, and, and Vines unpacks these as well, are, as I said, malakoi and arsenokoitoi. And according to Vines, um, he's basically saying, and Denny Burke uh, notes this, he says that every translation, and so every translation, every English translation that suggests that Paul opposes homosexuality is generally in error. And that's a big deal because we have all of these English translations with some of the greatest uh, interpreters, uh, translators in the world. We have many, many, many English translations, and all of them translate homosexuality uh, in the traditional way where it would be translated as a sin. But what Vine says is that Paul is only meaning to oppose exploitive same-sex relationships. So he's saying that all of those who have translated the Bible um, against his way of thinking, that all of those are, are in error. You know, uh, we had the privilege of interviewing Dr. Rosaria Butterfield. And uh, for those of you who don't know who she is, she is uh, a former professor of English at Syracuse University who was a spokesman, really, a leader, a pioneer in the gay community. She herself was a practicing lesbian and a, not a Christian at all. 
And her story is uh, recorded on one of our other resources, and I hope you'll take the time to, to hear what she has to say. But one of the questions I asked Dr. Butterfield in that interview was this, can you be homosexual and be a Christian? The homosexual community insists that they, uh, they can love the Lord, they can be saved, they can be redeemed by the blood of Christ, and still practice homosexuality. What is your response before I tell you what her response was? My response is 1 Corinthians six eleven, which says, And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So I've known, I think we've all known, strong believers, growing believers who have struggled with same-sex attraction and, and homosexual desire, and some have given into that desire over time. But I think the big difference is that they've declared war on that sinful desire in them the same way that I've declared war, and every Christian must declare war on enslaving sin. And so, yes, you can be a strong, growing cr- Christian that continues throughout their life to be at war against this uh, sinful desire. I'd agree with everything Jim just said. I mean, it's in, in all throughout Paul's letters, all throughout the New Testament, is we're told about how what we once were. We were once a practicing fill-in-the-blank, but we are no longer that. We are now in Christ. I think in the church, throughout the church, I think what the church's job is to do is to provide a place for those who are doing war. I think I think I think the difference is, and I think I think what we're trying to address here today is that there are many who maybe once declared war against their sinful nature, but now have raised up the white flag, um, or and, and they have decided that this is, this is who I am, this is what I'm going to be. It all comes down really to an identity issue. I, I am this person, and that person is in direct opposition to what God has called them to be, which is in Christ. And so I think that's the real key, and I think it's a good illustration, is have, have we surrendered to our old sinful self, or are we still doing battle? Because uh, we're not promised there to be an easy life. Once you, decla- once you d- declare your faith in Jesus, that's where the war begins. That's when the battle begins. That's when the old man has been dealt the death blow, but often he rears his ugly head up trying to win again, and so there's more battles to be fought, and by, by grace or sanctification, the work of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, we're equipped to do that battle. I think the first thing is to make sure that, that the people are declaring war right. on that, that they, right. that, they, that they think that there's a war to be fought. And, and I, I found that many people are, many who come and, and who are struggling with that, but there's, there's many who don't. Um, and I heard it put this way, that many times in the church when we're talking about being merciful, being gracious, uh, sharing Jesus with those struggling with homosexuality, it's a, and it's a great passage. Uh, the, the woman who was called in adultery that um, Jesus said to the person without sin, cast the first stone, and they all dropped their stones, and then he turns to the woman and he said, um, neither do I condemn you, uh, go and sin no more. And that passage is actually offensive to a homosexual who believes that, that what they're doing is okay. And I've heard, it, I've heard it said that a better passage for them would be the Good Samaritan, where uh, we are. We approach the homosexual as if they are along the road, and they need us to come, and they need us to bandage them up, and care for them, and love them. Uh, so I think that there's a whole shift that has to happen in people's hearts and in their minds before you can even have that conversation. When we become uh, when we become believers, what happens is the lights are being turned up 
gradually in our lives and, and over our hearts. And so as the lights are turned up to reveal those sinful strongholds and places, we're, we're coming to see things more and more that are offensive to the character and the nature of God. And once those lights are turned up and God reveals to us that this is sin, and I, and I agree with what Chuck just said, we have to consistently hold out that this is sin. And once the lights are turned up and that corner of someone's heart is revealed, that person has to renounce that sin. They have to acknowledge it as sin, and they have to renounce it as sin if they're truly going to claim the forgiveness that is theirs in Christ. So can a Christian be homosexual? Yes, if they're willing to acknowledge that their homosexuality is a sin for which Christ came to die. You know, one of the things that I've done as a pastor and as a preacher is I try to gear my sermons towards hundreds of people, because that's that's what I preach in front of every week. Uh, but then I try to narrow it down to how would I preach this if it were in front of a youth group? How would I preach this if this were in a small group setting of 12 to 15 people? And how would I preach this if this were a one-on-one sermon? How would I preach this sermon if this were uh, to a family member? And that really, that's a reality check, because a lot of times I think we talk about this issue, and we talk about the need to be loving and the need to be gracious, and that is so true. But at the same time, I loved what you said, Jim, uh, about declaring war. We need to help our people declare war on this specific sin. So when they come to us, I think a way for us to gauge our preaching and our teaching, the public means of the way we do that, is to compare it to the way we would we would do it if we were sitting one-on-one with someone who's struggling through this sin, and to plead with them to please see the scriptures on this. Please don't go down this road. This is a road that leads to death. This is a road, this is not God's design for you. I was sitting in a, in a prayer meeting a while back, a few years ago, when the gay marriage bill came to Delaware. I was sitting in a, in a prayer meeting in our church in a small group. We were all praying about the, the situation, and there was a guy sitting next to me who started praying a normal prayer, and then he totally broke down and just started weeping because his brother struggles with same-sex attraction. And, you know, that's that's where our hearts need to be, is that we need to be, we need to have the voice of the gospel, but we also need the voice of the law when we interact with people who are crying out for help. It's interesting that in Dr. Butterfield's response to the question that I asked her is, can a practicing homosexual be a Christian? She basically took all three of what you men had to say. She took parts of what all three of you had to share, and her conclusion was the same. Our identity is, to be, is not to be found in, in our sexuality. Our identity is to be found in Christ. And if our identity is found in Christ, then our pursuit of holiness is critical to whether or not we are, we are a Christian. And her conclusion was that, no, you cannot be a practicing homosexual because the scriptures, specifically in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, says, and such were some of you. This is what you used to be. And she also mentioned the struggle that uh, with just with any sin, the struggle that we all uh, have to engage in with whatever our sin patterns might be, whatever our sin struggles might be, that, that also applies to a, a man or a woman who's struggling with same-sex attraction. One of my friends, I wouldn't call him a close friend per se, but he emailed me when he heard about this uh, series that we're doing, and specifically this particular resource with you three men. And he said, I am really looking forward to this. He is a, he would call himself a a celibate gay man, uh, that he does not practice homosexuality, but that he has absolutely no attraction to the opposite sex, 
that his his struggle, his sin struggle is with same-sex attraction. But he's looking forward to this. And then he said this. He said, I am so glad you guys are doing this because the church really does not know how to respond. So in summary, what I'd like you men to do is I'd like you to, from a pastoral perspective, I'd like you to challenge the church in light of this entire discussion. I think that the church has an incredible opportunity to express the gospel, express the grace of God in this I don't even want to call it an issue, and I think that's I think that's where the church messes up sometimes. It's not an issue. We're talking about people. So it's not as if we're trying to solve the issue or solve a problem. We are we, it, this is a people thing. And I think that's where a lot of a lot of the um, conversations miss the point. What the scriptures are asking of these human beings, not asking but commanding of these human beings, um, is to follow after Jesus with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind and and that, that they be transformed by the renewing of their mind. And so what that involves is total identity change. And I think that the scriptures call the homosexual out of a homosexual relationship, out of sexual relationships, out of gay marriage, but they do not call them out of intimacy. And I think that's where the church, that's where we have an opportunity, is we are calling somebody to be single, or the scriptures are calling somebody to be single their whole life, but they're not calling them not to have human fellowship. And I think that's where the church thrives in this ministry and in this area is to surround those who are battling, who are struggling, who are doing war with their sinful flesh, and to surround them with family, um, to invite them into their families, um, to appreciate them for who they are, for if they're an artist, to appreciate their art, if they are a banker, to appreciate their job, if they are a lawyer, to appreciate how God has made them, and to show them that they're valued people, and the way that you would show any single person that they're a valued person. And and, in my experience, and in in the church, those who are, whether they're single heterosexual or single homosexual, those who have intimacy are, are the ones who are able to do battle the best. And I think that goes without saying with all human beings. And so I think that the church is called to come around our brothers and sisters who have declared war, who are grieving over this, and to appreciate them for hum- and to invite them into their families. And I think a lot of churches, a lot, a lot of church people might be afraid to do that. But again, like Jim said, I'm going to bring it back full circle. Jim, you said earlier, we don't have anything to be afraid of. I mean, I, you know, you've heard it said that, that do not fear, fear not, do not fear, fear not. And I think that's the driving factor in a lot of Western world evangelicals today in all kinds of arenas whether it be Supreme Court justices or politics or the or gay marriage, is fear. We're afraid of everything. We're afraid for our kids. We're afraid for our churches. We're afraid for tax-exempt status. We're afraid for all kinds of things, and we are called over and over again, fear not, fear not. First words out of the angel's mouth to announce Jesus, fear not. So I think that the church could begin by inviting gay men and women into their homes, into their fellowship to provide the intimacy that, that they won't have otherwise. Yeah, I I think that we make a big mistake and we're not very compassionate when we think that somebody who struggles with same-sex attraction, for them to give up their same-sex attraction 
is akin to telling someone to give up broccoli for a week. We have to understand that uh, this attraction runs so deep inside of them in the same way that a heterosexual person is extremely driven by their heterosexual desire. Homosexual people are deeply driven by their homosexual desire. And so it's not compassionate and it's dismissive and it really doesn't do justice to what we understand sin to be in the theology of sin in the New Testament to kind of just um, in in a very half-hearted or light way tell homosexuals to give up their practices like that. I like a quote that I read from Al Mohler. He said, we need to love them more than their gay friends do, and we need to love them more than they love their homosexuality. And I think that's kind of at the heart of it. It's interesting to me that more and more young people are experimenting with homosexuality and bisexuality, and it's almost now outside the church for sure, and and unfortunately maybe even inside the church. You you haven't figured out who you are sexually until you've tried everything, and that we need to understand as a church that that's the culture in which we're preaching the gospel. And uh, so, yes, we uphold uphold the Bible's teaching about sin, but we equally uphold the Bible's teaching about the gospel and the grace of the gospel and the power of the gospel to, to change lives. And we need to believe, we need to tenaciously believe, that the gospel really is the remedy for a homosexual's struggle with same-sex attraction. I think that the church should also not look at heterosexuality as the good news. So for a homosexual person to be all of a sudden be a heterosexual or to be married, that, that's, that is good news, but it's not the good news. Just to kind of bounce off what Jim was saying there, it's the gospel that we're offering. And that might mean a life where a homosexual person is never married and is always battling until Jesus comes and makes all things new and restores all things. And so I think that often the grand story is this guy was once gay and now he's married with five kids. And where, where I, I know of gay men who have who have married, and yes, they have good marriages, but it's still a battle, and the, and the husband and wife do a battle together, but they don't look at that as the good news. They look at the good news as Jesus is the good news. And so I think the church needs to be clear on that as well. Our, our ending might not be the story of a man who transforms himself or a woman who transforms themselves, gets married, and realizes the, the, the error of their ways. It might be a lifetime. Yeah, and I also think that we should, you know, pastorally speaking, if I were to speak to our people on this, and I have, is that we should imagine those who, who view their same-sex attraction, if they were to act on that, that they, that they see that as a sin. And as Jim said earlier, that they've declared war, that they're doing war against that sin. And I, I think that we should consider our own lives. And I think there's merit to the complaint that we focus so heavily on this sin. And I've seen that decrease, uh, but we, we focus so heavily on this when we have people who are divorced several times, who struggle with pornography, who struggle with greed, who struggle with gossip, who have lying tongues, to encourage our people to declare the same manner of war against those sins that our brothers and sisters are using to declare against their... Um, proclivity towards same-sex attraction. I also think pastorally we need to be warning our people about their children. As Jim said, I, I totally agree with that, and I see that, that right that now it's just an option. So when we were kids in the in the 80s, it wasn't really an option. It was, it was something that was kind of out there, it was in the closet, but, but now I think every kid, even in the church, will go through that journey of, is this an option for me? And that's where we have to be pointing people back to the Word of God, and we have to be strong in that area, and we're simply not. Our people, 
they're not looking to the Word of God. They don't understand some of these terms that are being used. They're hearing Matthew Vines' arguments, and, and they're very compelling. And so they know people in their lives who are loving and um, who are gay. And I also think, lastly, that we should be very careful about the politics of it. I think of, of the early church, and Nero was one of the emperors during the time of the early church, and he actually had same-sex partners. Um, he had, at one point, he, was, he had two gay marriages uh, involving his slaves. In one of the marriages, he was the groom, and in another marriage, he was the bride. And so this was rampant in the time of the early church, and yet you don't see a heavy focus on that aspect of it by the apostles. You see them dealing with those in the church, but also in the context of many sins, not just that one particular sin. All right, in conclusion, I believe it's important for us to understand what we mean when we say that the gospel is is the business that we are to be about. And that is the life-transforming power of Christ who came to this earth to give his life on the cross for sinners like you and like me. One of the stories I'm driven by as I was listening to this discussion is the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. There was nobody hated more than people like Zacchaeus. The Jews hated him. The Gentiles hated him. This was a man who was despised. He would be considered the scum of the earth given his relationship to Rome and his his abuse of, of the Jewish people as a tax collector. Zacchaeus was, was a hated man. And Jesus walks by the tree where Zacchaeus had climbed into to see Jesus as the crowds were pressing. And he says to him, I'm coming to your home tonight. I am coming to visit your home. I am coming into your world. And I think it's important for us as Christians to to enter their world, to get into the nuts and the bolts of life in the gay community. One of the things Dr. Butterfield referred to that was extremely difficult for her as she was dealing with the gospel in her own heart was the loss she was going to experience in terms of community. She said the gay community is just that. They are community. There is a, a commitment of love. They're, they're kind of alone. They're by themselves. They're uh, at times considered to be outcast, and their love for each other she said, is unquestionable. And it was a very difficult thing for her to be able to, to realize that she was, going to, she was going to lose that. And when she refers to losing everything, that is a large part of what she said she lost. Well, we are to be the family of God. We are to be the people who walk by the tree. We see Zacchaeus. We call him down. We say, we're going to your house. We want, to, we want to enter your world. We want to be a part of who you are and understand where you're coming from. And in that kind of loving relationship, we will find that the gospel has the power to change a human heart. Now, granted, not everyone who comes to faith in Christ is going to suddenly lose their, their desire for same-sex attraction. They're, not everyone is going to be transformed. Some will be. Uh, Dr. Butterfield is one of those who miraculously is now married to a Reformed Presbyterian pastor. She does have several children, and her life has been given over to, to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what the good news is. And so as Christians, I think it's important for you 
who are listening to this resource to understand all of it has to come back to what does the Word of God say? What does the Word of God teach? There are erroneous interpretations. We hope we've been able to expose some of them on this resource, but it all comes down to what does the Word of God say? Not what does the culture teach, not who is more convincing or politically or socially, who is more demanding of of us, but what does the Word of God say? What does it What does it teach? And our authority has to rest in that. There are a lot of passages in Scripture I kind of wish personally were not there because they hold me accountable for certain behaviors in my own life. I wish I could at times act on some of my impulses, but I can't because the Scriptures forbid it. And so just as we all struggle with sin, uh, just as we all have those life-changing sin patterns that we must struggle with, so does the gay man, so does the gay woman. So Christian, our challenge to you today is to return to the truth of Scripture, to return to the Word of God, to return to preaching and teaching the life-changing power of Christ, who is our Redeemer, the life-changing power of Christ, who is our Savior. And, and on that note, I'd like to close us with a word of prayer. Hopefully, as you've listened to this resource, you'll get our other resources and visit us on markinc.org to find out what those are. So let's pray right now. Let's pray for the church. Let's pray for our pastors, our leaders, those who are required by their calling to speak out on these issues. And let's pray for our friends, our relatives, brothers and sisters, whoever they might be, who are struggling with same-sex attraction. Father, I thank you for the power of the cross to change a human heart. I thank you that you are the life-giving force, that apart from you, we can do nothing. I thank you that you gave your life on that cross for us and that you sent your Holy Spirit to indwell us, to give us the power to change, to change us from the inside out, to remove those life-challenging sin patterns that so often bring us down. Teach us to walk by faith. Teach us to increase our faith. Give us that increase in faith. Give us that gift of repentance so that we might be able to see the power of Christ at work in our lives. Thank you for these men today. Thank you for their willingness to participate in this in this resource. And may you be glorified in all that is done with this resource as the years go by. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to a conversation between Dr. Chuck Betters and three pastors as they have unpacked six scriptures that are often used as a basis to affirm same-sex attraction. We are confident this resource will help you understand the truth of scripture and have a better perspective on how to reflect Jesus in all of your relationships. Visit markinc.org where you will find more resources on same-sex attraction, as well as numerous other stories that offer the help and hope of the gospel to hurting people. You can subscribe to our Help and Hope podcast and be one of the first ones to receive new resources. Each resource tells a redemptive story that addresses life crises such as grief, adultery, coming home from war, terminal illness, chronic illness, caring for a child with special needs, autism, and much more. We hope you will let us know how our resources are offering help and hope to you.